watching my fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cohen. Yes! Yes, it's me! It's me! Keep clapping! Clap for the miracle that we actually made it to 2021, but for some reason it seems to be somehow worse than 2020. But how would we know that you wanted the miracle if you didn't keep clapping? Folks, welcome to this amazing episode of My Fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. And apparently this is now the second time this year, which is the only two times this year that I've now said literally. And I'm not sure if I'm going to keep doing that. I hope I don't because I already find it annoying. This is a Muddy Waters Media production. Check us out on Google uh, Play on Facebook, on YouTube, on Instagram, on Anchor. Go to anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters. Go to our Twitter, our Periscope. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Play for all of the podcasting apps. We are on Float. We're on Twitch. We're on LinkedIn. Check us out everywhere. Check us out on all the podcasting apps. Anywhere that you are on the internet, we are also there. Check us out there. Be sure to like us, Follow us, five star us, hit the bell if you're on YouTube. I want your phone to blow up every single time we put out anything. Okay, we want we, we want you to get those notifications morning, noon, and night. Be sure to hit the bell and be able to be share this right now. However you're watching, listening, if this is live, pre-recorded, however you are consuming this content that I have curated and created in real time for you, be sure to share it right now. The last thing I want is for you and your closest loved ones to miss out on a roughly hour-long Libertarian podcast on a Wednesday evening. Be sure to give the gift of Spike Cohen today. 
Kids love it. This episode, of course, is brought to you by the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing waffle related caucus in not just the Libertarian Party, but in any party on this planet. Uh, be sure to join the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus Facebook group, which is named Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus. And uh, if you want to become a member, we have buttons for sale at the Muddied Waters store on Muddied Waters Media. This episode, of course, is also brought to you by Nug of Knowledge, an uh, increase, uh, interesting new brand of CBD that's actually spo- smokable and edible. Uh, it is CBD and it is 100% uh, legal and compliant. Uh, it is uh, not your everyday CBD supplier. A, a portion of the profits go to help end the war on drugs and also are part of a compassionate use program that donates medicinal hemp products to veterans and people with disabilities who can't afford these natural remedies on their own. Uh, many who use it say that it helps with joint pain, stress relief, or a much-needed pick-me-up. Uh, be sure to use checkout code SPIKE, S-P-I-K-E, for 10% off. This episode, of course, is also brought to you by personal injury attorney, Chris Reynolds, attorney at law. If you are in or near the Tampa Bay area of Florida and you find yourself personally injured, be sure to call Chris Reynolds at Chris. Well, go to, I don't know his phone number actually, but sure to go. You can find out his number by going to chrisreynoldslaw.com. Chris Reynolds will get you money. I, I, I probably should find a better way to say that, but if you are hurt, he will lawyer you some money. ChrisReynoldsLaw.com. I don't really understand how personal injury law works, which is why I just said it that way. The intro and outro music to this and every single episode of My Fellow Americans is brought to you by the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on his Facebook. Go to his SoundCloud. Go to JoeDaviMusic.BandCamp.com and you can buy his entire discography. It's like 25 bucks. It's like a hours of amazing music be sure to go there right now thank you so much to mr joe davi i'd like to thank kroger for this delicious purified drinking water that i am drinking on this episode of my fellow americans bulavanaka oh you can taste the kroger that's delicious shout out to Tehran turks his mom and him as always folks my guest tonight is an absolute champion for education He's actually the former managing editor editor of Champion News. I told you he was a champion. And also of Education Matters, which are two publications that are, are focused on education reform. He has talked about education reform on Fox News, ABC Chicago, uh, multiple other radio outlets and, and newspapers and websites across the U.S. Uh, he has been a presenter on panels discussing education choice, Common Core, homeschooling, uh, and the Illinois Freedom of Information laws uh, with groups such as American Majority. Americans for Prosperity, Illinois Tea Party groups, uh, homeschool conventions, and state legislative hearings. And he is on here tonight with me, Spike Cohen, and we will not rest until we have single-handedly solved the education crisis here in this country. That is my solemn promise to you, and I just made it on behalf of Lenny as well. Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, please welcome to the show my my guest, Lenny Jarrett. Lenny, thanks so much for coming on, man. Oh, thanks for having me on, Spike. This will be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. This is a topic that is near and dear to me, and I I really look forward to talking with you about this. And folks, be sure to chime in with your thoughts and questions. Muddied admins are standing by, and Lenny and I will let you know if you are right or wrong. Now, 
Lenny, just out of curiosity, I'm reading about your bio and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing all the things that you've done. You, you are absolutely fantastic when it comes to education reform. What got you into this? Like, what, what was there a, a moment that just made you realize you had to make your, your basically make your, your life's advocacy focus on education? Or was it sort of a, a, a cumulative thing? Tell, everyone has their story for why they do what they do. Tell us the, the Lenny Jarrett story. Well, I kind of got started because I was actually researching a school referendum in my local public school district. And about two weeks into doing that, the website I put up to pl placed all my FOIA requests and everything, all the information I get back, I was like everybody to try to decide what they wanted. My website right. got hacked and I turned out to have a cyber stalker for about six years and found out it was a husband of a teacher in the local school district. And the more they pushed me, the more I pushed back and the more I researched and figuring out what was wrong with the public school system, per se, for the most part, who was running it and what the problems were. And that just led me down this whole path of, okay, education choice is actually the answer. Parents need to be empowered instead of all the power being in the hands of local bureaucrats, federal bureaucrats, and state bureaucrats. So it was, uh, this is fascinating. So you were hacked. And you said, you found out who it was and you said, I'm going to show them, I'm going to fix, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, eliminate a problem that, that this, this man's, I guess, wife is, was a part of with the, with the teachers unions or whatever. Yep. She, yep. She was. And it, it wasn't, I, at the time I didn't understand exactly what the problems were. Right. I just was kind of trying to find out to see if they needed a tax referendum. So they turned me, a mild manner computer programmer, into an education reform expert and advocate by attacking me and continuing to attack me over and over again. So I just kept digging until I found out what the real problem was. And I did find out what the real problem was. Parents don't have any power right now, and that's the issue. Right, right. So you're like the Batman of education reform. You were just a mild-mannered guy, and then they came after you, and they kept coming after you, and eventually you said enough, and or you actually kept more and more saying enough, and now you are here talking with a Jew in his basement. And this is uh, yes, this is absolutely this is perfect. So, well, hey man, thanks so much for coming. Up. I, I want to ask you, Lenny. Fifty years ago, as you know, or roughly fifty years ago, the Federal Department of Education was created. Uh, with the intention of increasing literacy rates and lowering the student to teacher ratio. And they've spent, uh, include, once you factor in inflation, they have spent well over $2 trillion, almost $3 trillion. And all of those things have gotten worse during that time. So I, I would assume that we yep. can agree that the federal government has done a bad job. But is that where it started or was it before that? And if so, what, what actually led to, what, what, what was the catalyst that started making education so bad in the U.S. to begin with? Well, the federal intervention really kind of got it kicked off more and more and more. I mean, um, but actually something you might want to know is the Department of Education was actually created about 168 years ago. People didn't want it as a department, so it became an office underneath the Commerce Department up until okay. the 1970s when Jimmy Carter elevated it back to the department, back to a full department cabinet status. That's interesting. So, but. Yeah, they started, the federal government started intervening actually back in the 30s and 40s and under the guise of, oh, we need more farming programs, we need all this, so they wanted to require that. And the more intervention the federal government did into the states, the worse education 
kind of became. They took more, the, the control did, was, was no longer local. And then the states started taking more and more control because they had to answer to the feds. And so this never ending cycle of intervention into local education. Lenny, are you telling me that the more government takes power away from citizens and centralizes it into the hands of politicians and bureaucrats and cronies, that that somehow makes things worse? Imagine that. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm going to need a minute just to process that. No. So, okay. So, so this is actually something that has been kind of sl- in a, in a similar way with healthcare. Healthcare problems didn't start with Obamacare or even with Medicare and Medicaid. This is stuff that really started in earnest. Uh, uh, shockingly enough, uh, between the period of Woodrow Wilson and FDR. So it sounds like kind of a similar thing with this. What what were some yes. of the first things that happened that really kicked off? You know, the 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 centralization of, of healthcare and the, and the uh, ensuing collapse of, of, of results that happened as a result of that? Um, well, I'm not as familiar with how the centralization for healthcare happened and stuff like that. I, I'm sorry. I meant, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I meant education. I apologize. Yeah. Well, it really was, you know, actually after Jimmy Carter did that, then there was the, the, uh, the education secretary under Ronald Reagan put mm-hmm. out that, report came a book a nation at risk which then the federal government and you know congressmen and legislators all think we have to do something about this because education is going the wrong way so they feel like oh we got to do something about this so the but then the more they do the worse it gets because they put all this control in the federal departments of education so the state department state groups education departments have to file even now with the federal department, any of their education plans, if they want to change something, they're going through the federal department of education on how they're going to fix things and how they're going to do things. That's why right now the teachers unions and the public schools get so upset whenever states are looking at doing any type of school choice, because that takes that, that child then is out from under the state and then from under the federal government. So they can't interfere with their education anymore. So it, it makes it it's all actually if you follow the money it's really about the money the more ch- yep. children they're educated in the public school system the more money the state w- spends and then the more money that the federal government spends so they control a lot more that way so you know this is the cycle of government failure right government fails at something or makes it worse they <laughs> yeah. use that as a pretext for even more control um yep. and then as a result of that things you know it, there's more power taken from people and more infringement on their on, on their rights and on their property. They're robbed more and more uh, of their ability to make choices and the money with which they can make those choices effectively. And then they fail even harder, repeating the cycle that that continues. So you know, yes. Here are some more recent examples of uh, of how this ends up playing out. Are uh, there was the uh, no child left behind bill that happened during. Uh, George Bush, or as I call it, an increasing number of children being left behind, uh, because that's really what it is. Or another way to call it is the scantronization of education, uh, where you know it's increasingly just. Well, I'm going to let you talk about it. What 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 happened with No Child Left Behind, and 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 how did that create the even worsening of of, of education? I keep wanting to say healthcare of education. <laughs> if I say healthcare, assume I'm saying education assume, and blame it okay. blame it on public schooling too. 
Yeah, well, No Child Left Behind just basically, again, it just gave more control to the federal government through the Department of Education so that they could regulate and do more stuff. Actually, it's about 8% of the money comes from the federal government into the public into a local public school. Right. But it's over 40% of the regulations are from the federal government. So you can see the disconnect right there. If it was only 8% of the regulations came from the federal government with 8% of the money, right. we actually wouldn't have as big a problem as we have right now. So nearly half of the regulation is coming from the government and, and all of the money is coming from the taxpayer. Let's be clear. When we're yes. talking federal money, that's our money. When we're talking state yes. money or even school district money, that's our money that's being that's being spent. But so they're only giving uh, 8% of the total funding that's happening, but they're putting in, which explains why there's been, I, I, I wish I had had the time, I, I thought to get the chart, but you know we've seen how the uh, administrator to teacher ratio has gone completely out of control. There are, by a yep. fact, I think an entire order of magnitude, uh, more administrators than there are than there are teachers. Yes, uh, uh, I forgot the exact number too, but I know administrators have gone up by over seven hundred percent since I think it's nineteen eighty two. Student population has gone up barely over a hundred percent, and teachers have gone up about one hundred and fifty nine percent. So it's yeah, everything's going into into administration to deal with all the paperwork they have to deal with right now. But we don't want to forget the Elementary Secondary Education Act, which was back under Lyndon Johnson, that then No Child Left Behind replaced, which is now the ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act, supposedly is what, they're, what, was what they called it, um, is that, which we're currently under, that replaced No Child Left Behind. What's crazy is whatever these bills are called, you can almost rest assured that it's going to do the opposite. So like yep, no child exactly. left behind, many children were left behind. What was this one called? Every Student Succeeds Act? Every Student Succeeds Act. So, so we can we can be almost... Every Student can, Fails Act. I was going to say, no Student Succeed Act. Like, you know, it, it yeah. ends up becoming the exact opposite of what of what was promised. Like, it, yes. it, it's insane to watch this stuff. You know, I, I just traveled the country uh, campaigning last year for, for vice president. We came in third, by the way. Uh, and I, uh, uh, I like to say that we came in third. It was far behind in third, but we came in third. Every single state. Anyway, whatever. That doesn't matter. I was in 35 different states, 75 campaign stops, and I talked to a ton of teachers. In fact, I even did some uh, interviews and shows with teachers uh, across the country and uh, and also uh, people that were heads of, uh, of, of school districts, of school boards. And they said, we don't get to do our jobs. We're not making decisions. What school boards are, and teachers are largely doing is looking at federal and state diktat and then figuring out how to actually take this and be able to teach children with it. So it, yes. it, it becomes an absolute mess. I think we often blame the teachers, and I think the teachers' unions are a big part of the problem. But in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, this isn't a teacher problem. This is a bureaucracy problem. Am I, am I not correct? Absolutely correct. Well, good. Yeah, uh, bureaucracy is the problem. Yeah, it's it, it's it's that was my my uh, my my takeaway from it was that teachers want to teach students. You know, are there some lazy teachers or whatever? Sure, that's true of any any industry, any sector of the economy, whatever. That's true of anything. But the vast majority of people I talked to were incredibly frustrated that they weren't allowed to do their jobs. The federal government created a series of burdens and regulations, and 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 they are largely just test 
uh, test takers and they yeah. are constantly threatened with um they're constantly threatened with you know funding changes if they don't get certain test results can can you talk to us a little about why we are seeing an increasing amount of children being labeled as special needs and being put on on you know on uh, in special needs classes and being put on medications and things like that is that related to no child left behind and other regulations it's I, I, more related to the, how the state funding formulas work um, from what I what I understand and, and have seen in the past in local school districts, including the one where I started researching. It's because they get their foundation level from the state was right. here in Illinois was about $5,000 per child. But if you have a student with an IEP plan because of some type of some type of special need that they need, some of them I saw were actually just because the student was shy. That money then became over $8,000 per student and sometimes even more. So it was an incentive to them to give kids an IEP to be able to get more money. And then the, the Ritalin and things like that for yep. students, really, I think that's more of, you know, they have so much stuff they need to get into the classroom that they just don't want to handle kids the way they used to anymore and they haven't trained teachers to really handle kids that are more active and stuff so their way to do that is to just kind of medicate them so they sit down and be quiet and just sit at their desk and do kind of what they're told so right. yeah, all these regulations end up getting more of the the accelerated kids brought back toward the middle where they're trying to get the other kids, you know, kind of brought up to the middle, Pulled up, yeah. but it ends up just bringing everybody down. Even the middle gets brought down as well because of the way everything is being done right now. And parents got to be upset about this. Actually, there's a recent survey that showed if parents had a choice, 36% of them would choose a private school. And you're like 33% of teachers would choose a private school. And that doesn't count the number that would choose a, a charter school or homeschooling. Well, so even with all the propaganda about uh, uh, private schooling and, and, and school choice and things like that, that come out of, out of the teachers unions, a third of, of teachers are saying that they would, they would rather deal with a private schooling system than, than deal with the government schooling system. That is incredible. Yes. You know, an, another big part about, you know, labeling kids as special needs is that that exempts them from the testing requirements. So they get more money and they get or, or, or the, the testing requirements are lower or something like that. The, the testing requirements are different, but they're still there. No, that was one of the things they argued about with No Child Left Behind, because even the kids with their IEPs had to still take all the tests and then they were counted. Now right. they're kind of part of a subgroup with, under ESSA, but they still do have to have the testing. It's just kind of counted in different ways. And that's right. why you see more and more schools actually now are finally moving to more of the growth from the first of the year to the end of the year, how much the student had actually grown rather than the standardized test. My take on standardized tests, they're tools for the bureaucrats. They're not tools for teachers. That's correct. And they're not tools for kids. You know, you, you, no. you've, I, I, I remember, and I mean, I was in a, a far less, you know, I, w I was in school in the eighties and nineties and late eighties and, and through the nineties. And it was already hard to keep, uh, you know, people are going to be shocked to hear this, but I was a bit of a precocious kid. And I ended up by the time middle school rolled around, they were just handing us tests every day. We weren't learning things. We were being taught to memorize stuff. And we were then you know, then we were then taking tests. And, you know, I, I thankfully 
for the most part was able to do the test but there were kids with testing anxiety that you know ended up being put in remedial classes and it was just because that's not how you teach kids you know and and in my personal situation I ended up turning to drugs mostly because I was bored and then as a result of that I completely fell off I was telling you during the you know while we were getting ready to start the show that you know if it wasn't for my parents being willing to you know intervene and and homeschool me a couple times during during uh, schooling it and especially those last couple years in high school I might have ended up in juvie I might have ended up in this whole school to prison pipeline and I'm grateful to them for that but it it hurts me because there are a lot of people whose parents aren't in a position to be able to you know to be able to do that for them and it's it's just terrible to see talk to us about how common core works into it because I hear a lot of different things about common core and you know I hear everything from it's great to it is you know uh, it, it's, you know, it's it, the implementation of communism in our schools and everything in between. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what common core is. Uh, tell us what is common core and, and, you know, how has it affected education in this country? I almost said healthcare again. I almost said healthcare. Right. Again. Well, common core is really kind of a guideline and some of it isn't bad, okay. but the, the problems was how it was implemented, how basically the Obama administration, when they came in, basically bribed the states to take Common Core. But the real problem with Common Core was it allowed almost every bad curriculum ever written to be into the schools. All they had to do was say it was Common Core aligned and schools were buying it, whether the curriculum was good or bad. That oh, wow. was really the problem. So, so some of Common Core was, you know, was not great the way it was done. But some of it was actually pretty good. But the problem is it doesn't solve the problem. It still puts the government in control instead of putting the parent in control. I mean, I, to me, if a parent wants to, wants to have a school that uses Common Core aligned curriculum, go for it. But right. if a student, you know, parent doesn't want a child in that, then they should be able to go to whatever school or whatever other entity that's not teaching Common Core aligned. That's really the that's really the solution. Common Core doesn't really matter. It's whatever these next fads coming down. The social emotional learning is a, is another fad coming down. Some of that is really good. Students actually need to learn how to deal with their emotions. Right. But right. again, it's going to be misused. So the parents don't have any power in this situation, and that's the real problem here. Yeah, and that's this is what I heard over and over again on the campaign trail from teachers, from parents. Uh, from some, uh, I had some high school students that came out and asked me questions about it. And, and what they said is, uh, essentially, it, it, there were many different ways that they said it, but it was all basically the same thing. We have no control over our schools. It's not working. Our children are falling behind. Um, you know, th- those who understood how the global marketplace is working are like, our kids are wholly unprepared for the 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 work the the labor competition environment of the future, even just in this country, especially, uh, and, and not to mention in other countries. Um, it, you know, and and it's costing us a fortune. Our property taxes are going through the roof, supposedly to pay for all this, and yet it is increasingly substandard. So I think that there is, and that's why you know polling shows that things like uh, like uh, school choice, like uh, you know homeschooling co-ops and things like that, are increasingly popular despite billions of dollars being spent on pro-government propaganda saying, no, 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 the problem is we just need more of your money. That's, you know, it's not, it's not the the, the problem with this race car isn't that the engine is broken and the transmission fell out. We need more. We need to pour more gas on top of the car that will fix this. Yeah. Parents don't even understand how much money is being spent in the, in the public school system right now. Anyway, 
I mean, there's schools in Illinois that are spending like over a little over four thousand dollars per student and are doing fine. There's other schools that are spending over twenty thousand dollars a student and aren't. And if you ever ask a superintendent, one question I used to love to ask superintendents and um, teachers and anybody high up in education was, how much money is enough? You keep saying you want more. How much money is enough? And I've only had one person actually answer that question because most of them are always going to be the answer is always more. So what? What? what just out of curiosity, what was their answer to that? Their answer was about $21,000 per student. And when I pointed out that that was actually Chicago public schools, that part of them were almost at $21,000 and Washington, D.C. was over $30,000, they were starting to backtrack and say, well, well, it depends on the student. They, they immediately started backtracking once I confronted them with that number. $21,000, a new car per student every year. Yep. I mean, private schools operate for a lot less than that yeah most private schools are under ten thousand dollars actually most private schools actually cost less than a public school to operate and most parents don't understand that they the teachers union and their propaganda again is like oh private schools are only very expensive oh the rich elite students and most the majority of them aren't there are a few yes absolutely but the majority aren't the majority are trying to help students and their tuition is less per year than than what public schools are spending per year. And that's while they're competing with a monopoly that uh, that can just suck money from people, you know, at will whenever they want to. And yet they still are able to outperform that entity, surprisingly enough. So it's almost like government, you know, I, I, I you know, I often say I, I was right before the show. I tried putting together a comprehensive list of things that government does not suck at. And uh, the pen didn't work because I got it from the government. Um, no, so listen. We're, so we, I think we, I think we've kind of driven home the fact that government has done a bad job at this. But you know, let's talk solutions. What are some of the free market solutions to education that can that can create serious reforms and improve the educational outcomes of, of students and, and teachers and parents? Well, the simple idea is fund children, not systems. Right. But then as you get into the mechanisms of how you do it, and there's lots of different ways. A lot of people like the, like the voucher method. That was the kind of the one of the early ones started back in right. Indiana in 1990, or not in Indiana, Milwaukee. Voucher started in Milwaukee. And there's a few states with vouchers and stuff. There's about 188,000 kids nationwide that are on vouchers. Mm-hmm. Vouchers are really a, just a, basically a certificate where the government says, I will pay for your child to go to another school. Those are very highly regulated, and those are really not a good free market solution. They're better than nothing, but they're right. not a good free market solution. Getting into education savings accounts has kind of been a better method because mm. then the student, the parent controls a fund where all the money is in that for the child. They can spend it on books, uniforms, the tuition, uh travel back and forth, even for specialized therapies, which is used in a lot of states, especially Arizona, Oklahoma, that does does some of this. And then there's tax credit scholarships, which is a where private donors give money to a scholarship granting organization that then they get a tax credit. Typically, it's, it's not always dollar for dollar, but it's some right. percentage of a dollar on that on their state taxes. So the states are basically saying, we'll give you this credit, but you're giving money specifically for education. 
Florida has the largest tax credit scholarship program now with over 100,000 students. And there's about 275,000 nationwide in tax credit scholarship programs. There's actually 24 programs in 19 states now with tax credit scholarships. And so those are very, very useful. They're usually typically just go to tuition. So there's a new thing that hasn't passed yet that's a really good idea is tax credit scholarships to actually fund an education savings account. So the mm. donors are giving money for the tax credit scholarship that's then funds funding a fund for the parents to then control through this organization. So it's, it's legit and everybody knows it's going for educational purposes. That's kind of the newest free market solution. It's probably the best of both worlds of the least regulation and still providing exactly what kids need more so than just a tax credit scholarship and definitely more so than just a voucher. And, and that coupled with, I would imagine, deregulation, you know, removing the federal regulations and everything, and or at least removing the bulk of them and getting rid of a lot of the statewide regu regulations and kind of decentralizing, allowing individual school districts uh, to, to decide what their educations look like and, and be empowered with their own funding to do so. Yeah, that would be helpful, but that's not happening anytime soon. Until we're, <laughs> before we get to deregulation, we're going to have to have more kids that are basically using tax credit scholarships and ESA and education choice before the deregulation really happens. Several okay. states do have open enrollment where a school kid in one school district can actually apply for another school district and go to school over in another district as long as they have room for students and can take more students and stuff. So that's kind of one, one, one method within the public school system that is allowing more choice as well too there. But we got a long way to go before we ever get to really actually deregulating state codes and then federal codes and getting them out of the way of the education system. I want it now. I want the whole I thing know. now. So I, I, I meant, so you mentioned school choice and, and how you didn't think it's a free market solution. And I am with you, my friend, because I've talked with a lot of people who are like school choice, school choice, school choice, you know, yep. uh, assign the money to the students instead of the, instead of the, uh, the schools. And yes, yep. I agree with that. And like you said, is it better? Is it the, I guess, lesser evil of what we have now? Absolutely. Here's my fear of it long-term. And you can tell me if I'm just being a conspiracy nut uh, or if I'm right, my concern is that if school choice was to become standardized across the country, you would very quickly have the federal government being or, or I guess either however it's implemented, either the federal government or the individual state governments being the main uh, 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 funding for uh, source of private schools. And even if it didn't start this way, eventually very quickly, that money would come with strings. So not only would you now have uh, government involvement, more government involvement in private schools with the strings attached to the funding, uh, and, and, and would you now increasingly have private schools geared towards the government as the real client instead of the, the parents and the students, but by implementing that they will have gotten rid of the, the 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 only bastion of free market education left besides homeschooling is that not i mean it's like a camel's nose under the tent type of thing is that not a, a legit concern it is a legit concern but the way around it vouchers are the most regulated vouchers are kind of what that I, there would be a lot more regulations on vouchers than any other type if you go tax credit scholarships right and then them funding esas it's going to be very, very difficult to ever regulate those 
because the donors would stop giving and stuff too. It would be, it would be almost impossible for the governments to start regulating those. And the other fact is that most of those programs are, well, all the programs are at the state level, not the federal level. So if the federal government tried to regulate them, the state could go, no, our program's working great. You're not touching it. We're not right. dealing with this. So it's kind of insulated that way by being at state level programs. That's why as you know, education reform advocate, I would rather work at the state level than at the federal level. I know President Trump tried to talk about a lot about school choice and stuff like that, but it's still so much better and less regulated at the state level and keeping the federal government completely out of it. So I would say that's the way to go about it is ignore what the feds are doing, kind of keep them at keep them doing whatever they're doing and keep them out of school choice Mm -hmm. and keep it all at the state level. Absolutely. As much as possible. And that will prevent those regulations from creeping in. And, uh, you know, going to the, the, the federal model of things, instead of having one top down solution, you've got 50 top down solutions, which are still better than, you know, just the one. And, you know, different states can see what's working, what's not working and, and yes. tailor it as they see fit. And if we're already moving in the again, I want everything now. If we're already moving in the path of deregulating down to the state level or, 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 or giving funding and, you know, putting the funding at the, <clears throat> the state level instead of, you know, more and more at the federal level, that kind of creates the momentum to say, hey, what if we did this at the school district level? And hey, do we need 40% of the regulations to come from an entity that isn't really doing anything to help either way? But I, I'm a dreamer. I'm a dreamer. But yeah, well, actually. Actually, Douglas County, Colorado, actually passed a school choice program within their schools within their school system mm. that went all the way to the Supreme Court, but it died at the well. It got sent back to the state Supreme Court of Colorado at the same time of Trinity Lutheran case. They said this was wrongly decided. You need to go back and look at this case based on the Trinity Lutheran one, which was the, kind of the precursor to Espinoza, which got rid of the Blaine amendments. So it was the kind of the beginning of that. And what happened in Douglas County, Colorado, because it came back, the teachers union went into that next school board race and decimated the They throw so much money in it that their candidates won. They ended the program. So then it was no, there wasn't anything to fight for at the Supreme Court anymore. And then, and it was gone. So it can be done at the school district level, but it's much, much harder to deal with that than at the state level. But yes, some counties have tried it. So it's because the states have the wherewithal to fight against the the teachers unions if push comes to shove, whereas some of the school districts, they just get crowded out and they can't really do it. Yeah, it's hard on a school on a school board race level. It is really, really hard to fight the teachers union. Um, It's one of the things I did, actually, when I was doing it and realized it's you can only fight and beat the teachers union so many times. They're just going to wait and keep coming back and, right. and take over the school boards in just two year, two years or four years. They're going to have control of the school board again, no matter how many, how much you beat them by it's, it's almost impossible. That's why you kind of got to go up to the state level to really have a longer term impact. It, it is hard to compete against an opponent that is able to take money from you at any time to fund their own yeah. aims, right? Like if I, if we're playing Monopoly and it comes around to my turn and I go, all right, well, I'm going to take 2000 of Lenny's dollars and I'm going to buy Park Place. So like, you know, that, that, that doesn't, <laughs> that's not, that doesn't work very well. So, um, so yes. let's talk homeschooling a little bit. Um, where does homeschooling fit into all of this? And are there 
policies that can be implemented? And in fact, these ESAs that you're talking about, is that something that can be used at homeschool as well? And if so, what, what other things can as well? Yes, uh, um, ESAs could be used for homeschooling. And okay. in fact, they are used in some states for homeschooling. Most homeschoolers, though, are not going to want to do that. What actually, okay. what actually really works great for homeschoolers are individual tax credits or individual tax deductions. Credits are better. Where Illinois, we actually have one, and I use that because I ended up homeschooling my two children as well for, a, well, actually starting in my oldest for starting in fourth grade all the way through 12th grade. We homeschooled her and my other one after kindergarten all the way through high school. But it's a tax credit. So whenever I spent anything education related, I just saved my receipt. At the end of the year, I'm right. writing t- writing that off on my taxes up to $500 per student with a few other caveats in there. But um, so that was pretty much it. So it was great for me. And actually, Illinois has almost 300,000 people taking advantage of that individual education tax credit. And Illinois is actually one of the best homeschooling states in the country surprisingly given how draconian a lot of our stuff here's yeah i'm surprised by that here in illinois so really yes is that just because of the regulatory structure that allows them to do it or 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 what what led to that fight battles back in the 80s to open up homeschooling and making homeschooling legal and one one thing that's really actually kind of nice here in illinois is homeschools are considered private schools there is no such thing as homeschool in the legislative language, legal language in Illinois whatsoever. You are a private school. And that's one thing that's protected homeschoolers since the 1980s when it became legal here and why Illinois is one of the best homeschooling states. Just to give you an example, a few years ago, it was well actually 2012, a legislator decided they wanted all homeschoolers in Illinois to register. So they filed the bill. One of the secretaries called one of the homeschooling groups. A week later, 4,000 homeschoolers were standing in the rotunda singing songs and talking to legislators, and the bill was pulled while they were still on the, in the rotunda yeah. having their rally just because they saw the power of what homeschoolers can do when they band together. And that's the one thing that, you know, across tax credit scholarships, ESA, any type of school choice, that kind of momentum, that kind of numbers – will shift power at a state level very quickly to make sure they cannot add regulation to school choice and to homeschooling that way. And the interesting thing is um, that was also, you know, the, the, I'm sure the homeschoolers and their kids that went to the, to, to the rally to, to protest, that also was like their, their lesson for the day, right? So it kind of two birds with one stone. This is the thing with homeschoolers. They're at home. So if if they find out that there's something that's infringing on their rights, they can say, "Hey, kids, uh, we're going to Capitol Hill, or we're going to this, you know, this, the state house, or we're going to wherever." Uh, and uh, that's going to be today's lesson: is to, you know, is 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 you know, our civic duty to fight against infringements yep. and encroachments on our rights and our ability to do things. You know, they are they're uniquely suited; like they're literally at home. They can. They can go. They, you know, they're 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 not saying, oh, I, well, you know, the kids are in school and I'm at work. They're at home teaching the kids. So, you know, it, it it's it's kind of ideal. They're like the last people that you would want to tick off because they can just <laughs> go with the kids. They can pack up the van and come to Capitol Hill and uh, and 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 sing songs and 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 march and rally until you until you, you you take the bill down. That's that's hilarious. Yes, there's also the other side of that though. When public schools 
have a bill here in Illinois. They again, I mean, that this happens in other states too, mm-hmm. is when they want something passed, they want it here to increase taxes, is they actually bust students down for a field trip day to the Capitol. And there were hundreds and hundreds of kids there. Arne Duncan was actually famous for doing this when he was secretary, when he was education for the president in Chicago, running Chicago yeah. public schools. He would do that. He would bust kids down there by the hundreds so they could go talk to legislators um, to try to get tax increases. This is well. So we're doing the opposite. Instead of coming in buses, we're coming in, you know, uh, uh, thousands of minivans and, and, and cars and so forth. And the thing is, like, when you talk to a homeschooled kid, and this isn't always, but you often find that they are, first of all, they're usually more comfortable talking with adults because yes, they're, they they're, they're having a rapport with adults instead of that really weird top down thing that is used in the Prussian model of schooling where you're just kind of there and, and there's this authority figure and you never really get to question why they're an authority figure. They just are. And you know, they, they hand you these things that you have to use a number two pencil on and then the bell rings and you got to go to the next thing. Cause you're being institutionalized. Right? So there's this yes. sort of like disconnect between, you know, t- students and adults, you know, adults are this, you know, this, it, it's sort of like in, in peanuts, like, you know, you, you don't even really hear their voice and it's like, you just do what they say and, and, and whatever. Whereas in homeschooling, I have found that they often have, and I can, uh, from personal experience, I was talking with my dad about stuff. He, I was asking him questions. We would find out together instead of him having to pretend he knew everything to try to keep some kind of power balance. He'd be like, I don't know. Let's go find out. And we, and you know, this was pre-internet. We'd go to the library and find things out. It was, education was fun and I learned so much more and it took far less time every single day uh, to be able to do it. I I would, I would cruise through things because learning was cool. It was fun. I liked waking up and finding out stuff and I had way more free time to then go spend time with friends afterwards yep yeah there was an op-ed here a couple years ago i read about a college professor used to fight against homeschooling all the time but when he moved to to teaching at college he kept trying to get the students to interact with them and he it it was they weren't they weren't interacting with him right until he had this one student that just kept asking him questions and kept having conversations with him the whole time during class and finally he asked that student why are you comfortable asking all these questions when your peers aren't and they were like, right. Oh, I was homeschooled. And now he's an advocate for homeschooling because of that experience. He had personal experience of that intergenerational learning that homeschoolers have had. Yeah. I, 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 I have a theory that the reason that I, and I'm a millennial, so I'm not crapping on millennials. I'm just a very old millennial. I'm a millennial with male <laughs> pattern baldness, right? Like I'm, 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 I'm that first wave like i think i think 82 was the first year for millennials so yeah so i'm like the first i was the first millennial to run for for on a national ticket and that's not because there's anything special about me it's just i this is the first time millennials qualified so here i am um you know for, for the 35 plus age thing um all that to say it seems like a lot of kids that are in their in their kids a lot of people that are in their like mid 20s late teens there's this weird disconnect a lot of them have with adults. And I think it's entirely based on the fact that they were so institutionalized in the school system and, and, and their interactions with the people in the school system outnumbered their interactions with parents and other positive role models 
20 to 1 that even as adults now they still have a weird uh, interaction with other adults because they're not used to it and and I, I think that you know this go I mean this is a, a social thing even more so than an education thing but it's what happens when you put kids in cubicles and and treat them and basically prepare them for a a life of either factory work or going into the military which is what the Prussian model is based on and then shove them into a 21st century environment that has nothing that does not line up even remotely with that yep that's kind of the Prussian model it's basically you want kids smart enough to be able to do their jobs but not smart enough to be the boss basically to start their own jobs and start their own businesses is really kind of that model you're creating widgets that's and that's they're treated like kids are treated like widgets a lot of times especially with the funding they're all basically funding widgets is how the government funds schools right now because it's based on the number of children you have which is the wrong way to fund yeah we treat kids like statistics and the stats are bad and and yep. that's that's a really really bad thing so uh yes. lenny look before i before I, I give you a chance to give your final thoughts let's see if we have any questions here uh, we got some people that are calling you Education Santa, uh, so that's good. Um, um, let's see. Uh, so Sherry Conover Charlo, I hope you're saying I'm saying your name correctly. Sherry says I was on the school board for a Catholic elementary. Our kids spent 60 hours on the state required test plus another 12 hour test for th- tw- third graders. Our vouchers came in. Teachers had to teach reading for 90 straight minutes. This is for as young as kindergarten. Granted, reading activities didn't have to be sit down, yet it's too much on the same topic. Imagine it's a snow delay and the teacher still has to teach 90 minutes straight. Add lunch and recess and that leaves very little time left for crucial, I don't know what STEAM classes are, you probably do. Yeah, the the STEM and STEAM, it's art, math, um, science, technology. Oh, it's STEM but with... It's STEM, but with art as, oh. Right. Okay. STEM with, STEM what with arts. Yes. Okay. So it's just, you know, like you said, the the issue is funding is a part of it and and the strings attached that come with it. But ultimately we're not going to get the solutions we want until we get what I want, which is the full, you know, or at least the beginning, the process of deregulation and and putting the power back in the hands of, uh, of, of educators and parents to, to be able to empower students to actually learn and, and, and enjoy education right. instead of seeing it as, a, as an institution. Yeah, and the bigger, the more kids that t- take advantage of education choice, the faster you will get de- deregulation. Exactly, yeah. Well, it starts the process. People realize, oh, crap, yes. the problem wasn't money. The problem was who was in charge of it. And, you know, let's, right. let's keep working that way. Uh, yeah, and I like how you think. Seen a lot of that with the, parents have seen a lot of that with the pandemic. When their kids are at home now, they get to see exactly yes. what the classes are and what they're having to do to help the kids. So they're starting to get a taste of it. And I'm, we're way, you know, waiting to see what's really going to happen because it looks like the numbers so far, there's an extra 4 or 5% that are now moving to homeschooling. There's a lot of kids just being completely left behind and the schools don't know where they are and stuff right now because they just kind of dropped out already, which is really going to yep. be bad for society over time. The economics of this learning loss and what the pandemic is doing is going to be very, very drastic and very, very hard on a lot of students, and especially the low-income and poor students, which is why school choice is even more important because, take honest, the rich already have school choice. They can go and pay whatever they want. Yes. It's the low-income yes. that yep. don't have school choice, that need the school choice, that need those options that they're not getting right now. 
And because the funding's tied to the schools, they are essentially segregated into bad failing schools. They're being told, yes. hey, look, if you're poor, tough, stop being poor. Well, how am I going to stop yeah. being poor if I and my kids can't get a proper education to be able to to to, to learn? Th you know, before we even get into all the economic policies that are leading to you know entrenching people in poverty, just looking at education, they're not able yep. to get the educational tools they need to be able to seek the jobs of the future to do that. And we tell them, eh, tough, yep. stop being poor. So if nothing else, tying the funding to the students instead of to you know uh, to to uh, to the uh, schools if nothing else solves that problem, or at least greatly ameliorates that problem, and it forces those schools to either be good or go out of business and be replaced with one that is. Exactly. And public schools right now don't have that. They, they have no fallback. They're just going to keep getting money. They're not going to get closed, where public schools and private schools and charter schools, all of them will close. If they lose students, they're going to close. But you mentioned segregation a minute ago, and this is something I've talked about a lot. There was actually just a study done that showed, you know, 1968, before all of the desegregation and everything happened, 77% of black students were in predominantly white schools. That dropped all the way down to 63% in 1988 when they were really trying to really trying to desegregate, you know, integrate the schools a lot better. And that was working in the 1988s. But 2018, that number is back to 81%. So public schools right now are more segregated now than they were in 1968. Wow. And so, now I mean, and now you can't point to it as an evil. You can't say, look, they're forcing, you know, black kids to be in substandard schooling. You go, oh, well, this is just the reality of our system. Well, the, re the de facto reality is segregation into substandard uh, schools with no effective way to be able to change it until we change yep. the way that the funding's even happening. That is exactly. Yep. Wow. See, this is the problem. I, I, I'm already a libertarian, right? But then I get people like you on the show who drive down into even greater detail how much government sucks at stuff, and it makes me even more libertarian. So, you know, I'm trying to stay relatable, Lenny. Like, come on, man. Uh, Lenny, listen, this was fantastic. This is exactly, I, I think you are obviously a, an expert on this, and your ideas uh, are exactly, it sounds like, what we need to do to at least start the incremental process, because... As much as I hate it, we're not going to snap our fingers and have, you know, fully decentralized yep. schooling overnight, but we can at least start the process of moving to that. So, hey, man, thanks so much for coming on. Before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to give your final word. Uh, anything that you feel like we didn't get a chance to say, if there's anything you'd like to promote, plug your your website, your pages, anything that you want to say, anything you want to promote, Lenny Jarrett, the floor is yours. <laughs> Well, I, it is. It really comes down to the simple fact of we have the solution already to fix education. It's funding children, not systems. And then that will drive everything else. It'll drive the deregulation. It'll drive the state back out of controlling local control. It puts parents in charge. So we're empowering the parents to do what they need to do to make sure their child gets the best education because they know how, what your best education is for their child better than somebody in their state capital and certainly better than somebody in Washington, D.C. But if you ever want more information, actually, I work for a great organization, Ace Scholarships uh, out of Denver, and they work in eight states and they provide scholarships to low income students that gives these students the opportunity to be able to um, 
get a better choice, to get a better education. And it completely changes not only them, it actually changes their parents. Parents of these students that ACE uses are in three years, they're going back and getting their own degrees. They're increasing their job opportunities, increasing their own income because of the education that they're seeing in their children and the opportunity right, right. their children are getting. So yeah, acescholarships.org, if anybody's interested in coming and looking at more information um, and helping low, really helping low-income students outside, you know, without waiting for state regulations, a lot of our, most like, so the most of our programs are private programs. So we're helping students that are right now public schools and helping them get to private schools regardless of what the government says do or don't do we're already just doing it regardless anyway and people are donating and putting their money where their mouth is and actually right. helping students right now that is awesome man where can people find you personally because what i'm getting is we need more lenny where can we find lenny we love lenny <laughs> lenny 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 like literally someone wrote lenny 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 what where can people find well, you man i've kind of uh, most of my political stuff and everything i've done outside i've kind of I kind of kind of gotten away from all of that, but there is a universal education choice page on Facebook that you can find and follow my stuff there. When I post about okay. education choice or at a scholarship, it's actually act act scholarships.org. And you can look there and all the studies and all the work I'm doing at ACE um, and writing and stuff that is there as well. So, okay. Those so, would be the two places to find me universal school choice universal education choice universal education choice on facebook and yep. act scholarships on facebook a, uh no it's well it's act.acescholarships.org on the web, uh, oh. as a website web address oh, oh is the what is the website okay yeah we got hashtag website, team lenny yes. you're a hit lenny everyone loves you this is now so from now on folks this is going to be my fellow americans with lenny jarrett i'm going to retire um, everyone loves Jen, everyone loves Lenny. Um, Lenny, can we get you back on hopefully in the near future? Sure, absolutely. I'd love it. I think that'd be fantastic, man. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you. Stick around. I'm going to talk with you during the outro. Uh, but thank you again, okay. man. You are you are fantastic. Right. You just got hundreds of new fans. Uh, actually, thousands <laughs> of new fans. You just got a lot of new fans, Lenny. Uh, but folks, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. Uh, I, I, I had a really great time talking about education. Once again, shocker to no one, the problem is that power and money and opportunities and freedom have been taken out of the hands of the people, put in the hands of politicians and bureaucrats and cronies. And the solution, equally not a surprise, is to take that power back, which is what we talk about on this show uh, every single time I go live, because that's my thing. Uh, so thank you again for tuning into this episode. What do we have coming up? Um, let's see. So on uh Tomorrow, I will be on a very special episode of the Chris and Jesse, Chris and Spikey show with Spike and Chrissy. Uh, that will be uh, tomorrow at, I believe, 8 p.m. And why, why don't I just pull up the calendar? I'm sitting there fumbling through trying to remember what I'm doing. Let me just pull up the calendar. Everyone keeps track. Everyone is, is used to me having no idea what I'm doing. No, I'm wrong. It's at 8 on Friday. Next, tomorrow at 8, I'm going to be on the Post Political Podcast. And that is live, so check that out. Um, and I will also be on uh, the Chris and Spikey show with Spike and Chrissy on Friday. And then I'm going to take the weekend. Oh, no, I'm doing stuff on the weekend too, but nothing that's live. Uh, and then join me next 
uh, Monday for Culture of Winning, uh, where I talk with libertarians who get elected to office to demystify that idea of libertarians winning and talk to them about how we can build a blueprint for libertarians to win across the country. Uh, my guest next Monday will be Aaron Wright. Uh, and then join us next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where uh, Matt Wright and I parse through the week's events like the 2020 Wonder Boys that we are. And then tune in next week right here, same spike place, same spike time for another episode of My Fellow Americans with Jason Spire. Folks, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys. Caught up in the first time.